Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, the authors of The Amish, Donald Craybill, Karen Johnson-Weiner, and Stephen Nolte. Our guests for the next hour are Don Craybill, Karen Johnson-Weiner, and Stephen Nolte, and they are the authors of this book, The Amish. Um, Don Craybill, I'll start with you. You've been on this program before. You, how long have you been studying the Amish? I studied about, uh, started about 1983, so it's about 30 years, three, what got you, three what got decades. You, what got you interested? Well, I grew up in Lancaster County. Um, I had some Amish friends in school, actually, when I was growing up, and when I went to Temple University to do my graduate work, I studied with John A. Hostetler, who at that time was the leading scholar of the Amish in North America. So uh, being in Lancaster and working with John um, sort of pointed me in the direction of Amish studies. Karen, how long have you been studying the Amish? Almost the same amount of time. Um, I hadn't realized there were Amish folks living by us in upstate New York until we went out to buy a picnic table and we took along our infant son and uh, we'd been referred to this young couple that were building picnic tables and she had her, I thought it was a little girl at the time, wearing a dress, I now know it wasn't, and um, she started talking to her husband in this foreign language and I thought, oh wow, they're speaking Pennsylvania Dutch up here in New York and that got me hooked. I started reading John Hostetler's book. Stephen? Uh, probably around 1990. Um, I grew up also in uh, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, had Amish neighbors uh, growing up. And um, I suppose for me, in terms of an academic interest, it was around 1990 or so that I first began interviewing and talking to Amish people, mostly around questions of history uh, and uh, the history of, of the Amish community in Lancaster. And, um, uh, and then later, moving to Indiana, became fascinated with the differences as well as the similarities, but the, the striking differences between uh, the Amish folks there in northern Indiana and the ones I had known uh, back in, in Lancaster. When you first struck up conversations with them, were you working on an article or a paper? I was working on a project on, on Amish history, on, on the history of the Amish communities. And I think that is one of the, what, what you uh, would say, but that's one of the topics that Amish people enjoy talking about is uh, history, mm -hmm. is the mm -hmm. history of their church, the history of their communities. So um, I, I readily found people who, who wanted to uh, talk with me about that. Do you find people, non-Amish people, generally kind of afraid to say anything to them and like not know how to approach them? I think it really depends on which uh, non-Amish people we're talking about. Because the Amish live next door to a lot of English people, and they have very good friends, many of them, who are English. So they are comfortable, those English people, talking with them and so on. Just so, for people who don't know, English are? Uh, English are uh, non-Amish people who speak English. It's not about coming from Britain, but it's, uh, in the Amish mind, uh, the world's divided in half between those that speak Pennsylvania Dutch and those who speak English. 
So uh, the outsiders, uh, the English, who interact with the Amish a lot, I think are very comfortable with them. But if you move back several degrees from that, then people aren't quite sure what to say or how to, what the, if they'll be offended if they say, ask a certain question. Um, so in that sense, they're just like people. I mean, it's... Um, well, I know I was nervous because I didn't grow up around Amish people. I had never met any Amish people, and all I could think was uh, I, I was being introduced to um, a local school teacher in upstate New York, and all I could think is, well, these are very religious people. I should, I should dress up. I should watch what I say. I should be very careful. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, then learned I didn't need to dress up, and really they, they said a lot of the things I would have said and uh, got to know them more easily. When you talk to them, can you tell if you've asked something that is a little bit over the line or makes them uncomfortable to talk about? I, I think actually the three of us have studied them so long we pretty much know where the lines are and there are certain questions I probably wouldn't ask. But I want to go back to what Steve said about history because uh, if I want to ask a question about cell phones today, mm -hmm. I won't say, well, what does your church think about cell phones? I always go back to history, and I would start, uh, and they are very interested in history. I'd say, well, uh, what, what has been the churches thinking about phones when they came out in the early 20th century? And though they talk about that, and I say, well, have there been changes in the past about the telephone? Mm -hmm. And so eventually they'll get to the place where they'll, you know, where it's appropriate for me to ask about cell phones and they wouldn't be offended. But if I would just walk in and say, well, you know, I want to know what your church leaders think about cell phones, they'd probably clam up and wouldn't talk very freely. Well, and related to that, uh, I think asking um, a question about what, what, does, uh, what does the church or what does your church uh, think about this particular topic uh, is often more comfortable than asking what do you think about a particular topic because that can put them on the spot either first of all t to express a personal opinion that for some Amish people is is um, uncomfortable in itself for others not so but but especially if you're asking about an issue that um, that that um, might be somewhat controversial uh, in the Amish community uh, if they do have an opinion that's at variance with the rest of the community, uh, that puts them in a more awkward position. So, so asking what, what does your church mm -hmm, mm -hmm. think about this, or, or in the past, historically, what, what has your church right. uh, um, thought or said or done about this topic, rather than asking for a personal contemporary opinion. How, how are those decisions made of what's okay and what's not okay? Well, they're, they're, they're made in the, the, the context of of tradition, of history, of what's affecting the community at a particular time. Um, for example, there was a huge decision up in the, the community close to where I work. It's a Schwartz and Truber community, and those are very, very conservative Amish. And they, they had lost the market for canned milk. A, a local cheese plant had, had gone bankrupt, and there was no place, no market that would take the, the canned milk, and that meant uh, there wouldn't be able to be the farming going on. Young people couldn't have a dairy farm if you couldn't sell the milk somewhere. And so there were a number of meetings that took place with um, between Schwartz and Schuber, the different Schwartz and Schuber factions and Schwartz and Schuber churches in different states, in Ohio and elsewhere, um, about what to do about this. And ultimately they decided that they, they you know, they looked at what other 
very conservative groups were doing. Um, there were there was a committee that went to visit uh, an Amish community in downstate um, to see how they had handled this, and ultimately they decided that they would adopt bulk milk tanks, and they put very strict limits on it, but it was all in terms of what they had been doing, what impact it would have on the community, that it would allow young people to keep farming. And so they made what was for them a huge change, but in a, in a very measured, careful way. And they put limits on it too. You said there's a, a very conservative sect of Amish. How many different levels are there going from <laughs> most conservative to most liberal? Well, it's one of the main findings in our book, in our study, uh, and we worked on the book for about 10 years, and one of the most difficult things was to identify all the different subgroups or tribes, I like to call them, or it's like a Catholic orders or Jewish subgroups. Uh, we've identified 40, but even then inside those, like the Schwarzentrubers, uh, Karen's talking about, are one of those, but inside the Schwarzentrubers, Karen, are there five or six or? Well. Sub right now, about seven. Seven. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there are, so to speak, 40 big tribes, and then within each tribe, subgroups within those. So mm -hmm. I think the one key finding and conclusion that comes out of the book is we can't talk about the Amish world as being completely homogeneous, that everybody dresses alike and acts alike. There's enormous diversity and enormous variation. Steve had worked on that earlier in a previous book in Indiana, but what we've done is sort of upscale it nationally to identify for the first time in one book all the different groups. Uh, and the diversity is amazing. Uh, Karen's, if I can call them, Karen's Amish, <laughs> um, which aren't only in New York, they're right. in what, seven or eight different states? They're probably. in a number of different states, right. Th they basically froze technology in 1913 or 14. Right. Pretty much. I mean, very few changes. I talked to one bishop in Ohio, for he said he can count the cha changes technologically on five fingers now. And he, he was pretty serious at that point. That no. was maybe 10 years ago. And, and it hasn't changed much since. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, down here we can talk about cell phone use. Those Amish, the Schwarzenegger Amish, won't talk on the phone period. They'll uh, get on someone landlines, on landlines. Mm -hmm. they, they, they won't touch a phone. Yeah, they, they'll get an English person to make the call for them. I had uh, a call from a Schwarzenegger person um, a, couple week, a couple months ago from mm -hmm. uh, Tennessee. And there was an English person speaking to me and I could hear the Schwarzenegger gentleman mm -hmm. asking mm -hmm. the questions in the background and then the English person would uh, say mm -hmm. them to me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But you can go to the opposite extreme. I mean, your folks are using outdoor privies, right. no bathrooms in the house, no water under pressure. In northern Indiana, in areas of Ohio, Lancaster County, where the Amish are much more progressive or liberal, uh, state-of-the-art bathrooms, beautiful cabinetry in the kitchen, mm -hmm. um, very, I mean, some of their homes are much more uh, attractive in terms of the cabinetry than mine is, mm -hmm. and maybe yours, I don't know. Well, I, you <laughs> but know. but it, it's just a phenomenal, diverse world uh, in, in Amish society. I was just going to say, we were renovating our, our house one time, and I was out visiting an Amish friend in Michigan, and I was taking decorating notes. I mean, she had a beautiful home. I, 
So. And we're, we're giving examples here in terms of technology, but we could give examples of diversity in terms of interaction with neighbors in the wider community. Mm -hmm. um, in northern Indiana, uh, where I live, about 35 to 40 percent of Amish children attend public school. Uh, not, not high school, but uh, grades one to eight. And their pictures are often in the newspaper as student of the month or spelling bee champion or uh, something like that. Um, which is not something you would find even in a relatively progressive community uh, in like, like Lancaster. They're all in they're, all the Amish kids schools. are in are mm -hmm. in parochial schools or in Amish schools. Well, as um, as far as photographs, you have a lot of photographs in your book, and generally the the Amish people are photographed from behind, but you have some where you can see their faces. So mm -hmm. Did did you take the photographs? Do you ask them ahead of time, and who says yes? And who I, says I think no? Karen took one or two. And I took maybe three or four. One mm -hmm. of only one of them is mine. Right, it's that uh, Amish school bus out in right. Kansas. <laughs> it's, it's a what a tractor. Well, that's, yeah. But uh, the boundary for them is uh, they've crossed a moral taboo if they pose for a mm -hmm. photo. I mean, knowingly cooperate and pose. Mm -hmm. And so um, th there are more than a dozen photographers that uh, supplied photos for here. For the book, and typically they would be uh, taking a, you know, community working, or people from the side or from a distance. There are a few where it would be face on, but in those circumstances, the person would have agreed, or um, all, all of that. All of these would be basically within the boundaries. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so they don't really object to photographs per se. It's more calling them, well, your yeah, people my, do. Our, okay, and again, it's an example <laughs> yeah, of the difference. Like yeah. in, in Lancaster, in Ohio, um, Holmes County, uh, people just sort of mm -hmm. are callous mm -hmm. to the, mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. Amish people because it's being done so mm -hmm. much, but they yeah. typically wouldn't pose. Right. Mm -hmm. I've, I've taken pictures in, in a number of different Schwartz and Schruber homes and other places up, up there and in one case I, I, I was taking a picture the family was was putting together lacrosse sticks that was the cottage industry and um, the, the my friend asked me to take a picture of it because she was sending it to a pen pal in Iowa and couldn't explain it um, so I, I brought my camera I set to take the picture and and she made sure all of her children left the the, the room because she didn't want and and she wasn't sure which direction I mean, I had to show her what she could see through the camera so she could know that I wasn't going to take a picture of the children. Mm -hmm. um, and, and usually they will, they will, you know, make sure that they are clear of, of where I am if I'm taking a picture. With that wide range of guidelines from different sects or tribes, uh, what makes them all Amish? What's the consistent thread? Hmm. Well, I, we'll turn to the historian for that. <laughs> Well, there, uh, there, there is a shared sense of history. They would have a sense that they have roots in 16th century Reformation Europe, um, and then even more specifically from uh, 1693, uh, a, a renewal movement led by a leader named Jacob Amon, hence the name Amish, um, and some common migration history. Um, the Pennsylvania Dutch dialect, uh, a general aesthetic of plainness, so that, that maybe is construed in different ways, but uh, understanding of plains, they'll talk about plain people, like we are plain people. Uh, and they will recognize that, to some degree at least, uh, even across some of mm -hmm, these, mm -hmm. uh, some of these um, 
different different lines. Um, one of the big, um, I would say, probably the the, the brightest line uh, that's not crossed would be automobile ownership. Right. So horse and buggy transportation is really. Um, that's, I don't think there's ever been an Amish person who said that's what it means to be Amish, but functionally, that's, that's one of the, if, if you buy a car, that's pretty clear that you're not Amish. There may right. be some sizable right. Amish businesses that might even um, be in partnership with a non-Amish partner and they, they lease vehicles, but, but individual ownership of a car and driving a car rather than a horse and buggy that would be one of the major uh, major distinctions that all groups would share. What's the connection between Amish and Mennonites? Uh, Mennonites would uh, also trace their uh, historical and theological roots to the 16th century, to the same uh, Reformation era movement that the Amish would. Um, um, and in many ways, the, the, the 1693 division, um, separation, Jacob Amon's movement that becomes the Amish, it's uh, the other folks uh, who, who uh, in North America become known as the Mennonites. Uh, in Europe, there was a, a, um, uh, a leader named Menno Simons. Again, that's the, 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 the name that, that was used there, um, or the, the, the origin of that name. And then in the 1700s in Pennsylvania, the name Mennonite um, comes to refer to um, um, the, the the Anabaptists would have been the, the 16th century uh, Reformation movement. And so then in Pennsylvania, um, groups that hadn't necessarily called themselves Mennonite in Europe in Pennsylvania in the 1700s begin using the name Mennonite when they write to uh, colonial officials in Philadelphia and are trying to describe who they are. And so Amish and Mennonite uh, become then kind of two different, um, two different names at that point that are used. And in general, the Mennonites then over the next 300 years uh, are the relatively more uh, progressive group, although Mennonites, there, there are some very conservative Mennonites that would uh, appear to be like the Amish in some mm -hmm. ways uh, today. Is there any communication or convention or anything among the, between the Amish and the Mennonites or among the different Amish sects? The, like gatherings well, where they compare first notes? On the, on the Mennonites um, and Amish, there, there is a sense of the, uh, of, uh, in both Amish and of a shared history, mm -hmm. a Martyr's Mirror, uh, the, a shared history of religious persecution in Europe. What so is Martyr's Mirror? The Martyr's Mirror is a large book of about 1,200 pages which tells the story of um, uh, the ancestors of Amish and Mennonites in the 16th century uh, dying, being um, burned at the stake, uh, being decapitated and other things because of their religious uh, beliefs. So that book is um, <clears throat> part of the tradition of both. So there's a shared historical consciousness. But apart from that, well, there would be some cooperation in um, Mennonite Central Committee's international relief sales. They have auctions occasionally mm -hmm. um, and do various projects uh, for uh, people in other countries that are in need of assistance, and so there's collaboration there. There's a group called um, Mennonite Disaster Service that's a bit like the Red Cross that that um, functions in which Amish people participate. In fact, I saw there was a press release um, recently with the, the tornadoes mm -hmm. in Oklahoma that the first Mennonite Disaster Service uh, response teams to show up there were Amish uh, folks mm -hmm. from Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's, there's that kind of cooperation, right. but on a on a day-to-day -day basis or on a, on a regular basis, there's not a lot of, um, I, I wouldn't say, 
a lot of organized uh, relationship between Mennonites and Amish today. Though, though there's a lot of cooperation in Lancaster County, for example, in the schools. You may mm -hmm. have Mennonite schools taught by Amish among and vice versa. Among the most Mennonite. conservative. Horse and buggy driving. Mm -hmm. Right. There's right. a small group of horse and buggy driving Mennonites who would cooperate right. in that way. It's it, it's <clears> interesting. <throat> even even the Schwartz and Troopers who who have very little interaction with other Amish and those kinds of, mm -hmm. of endeavors will understand Mennonites as not English. Mm -hmm. um, they're, they're different from English even though they're not Amish. How many Amish are there? In North America about 285,000, uh, 30 different states plus Ontario. There's, I'm not sure, is it five or six thousand maybe in Ontario. Mm -hmm. uh, so about uh, 285,000 adults and children. Is the number going up or down? It's going up. It doubles every 18 to 20 years. You have a, a chart on migration of Amish, and it looks like Pennsylvania lost something like 125. Well, you, uh, yes, we track migration. Uh, this is household migration uh, by each year. Uh, we've been gathering uh, data since, I believe, 1966 or 67. And yes, Pennsylvania typically is one of the big losers, but Pennsylvania and Ohio ha are, are the states with the largest Amish population. So Pennsylvania has 65,000 Amish, as does Ohio. So the, the number is not going down. Right. right. The, so the real number of migration, uh, families migrating from Pennsylvania is high, but percentage terms it's fairly yeah. low. Right, and exactly. So <coughs> if you go to Delaware, for example, where there's only maybe 15 or 1,800 Amish, and they lose 60 families, that's a huge difference. Uh, a large proportion compared to the small number from Pennsylvania. Why would they migrate? They would migrate because they may be able to buy cheaper land in New York, in New York. Mm -hmm. Missouri, New York is a major draw. Wisconsin, <coughs> Kentucky. They might be able to sell property here uh, and get $15,000 an acre and buy property for five or 6000 somewhere else. So they might sell one farm here and buy two in Missouri or two in New York. When you drive around Lancaster County, you see Amish farms all over the place, but you also see a lot of development in, mm -hmm. adjacent to it. Do Amish ever sell their farms to developers who put malls in and then they take the money and go someplace else? Yes, occasionally. Uh, historically, the church has had fairly strong negative feelings about that. And generally, uh, if, if, a farm's a, if an Amish person is selling a farm, another Amish person will buy it, often in a private sale. Mm -hmm. But there are some occasions, um, I, know, I mean, some um, times that I'm aware of where Amish people have sold to developers. Mm -hmm. uh, so it happens, but it's more tends to be rare, uh, much rarer than uh, outside people selling to developers. A, c a couple of more basics. So mm -hmm. What is their faith? Well, they're, they're Christian. They were a, a radical faction of the Protestant Reformation, if, if, you're, if you're talking about the beginnings, the Anabaptist movement. And um, so, so they are Christian. Um, What's a Amish service like? Long, very long. Um, Three hours. Or four if you're Schwartz and Trooper. Oh. <laughs> Sitting in benches uh, without, without backs, backs and without padding. And, and you're sitting there, women together, young girls together, boys together, men together. And um, you're listening to, to sermons, you're praying. Is it conducted in Pennsylvania Dutch? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you all understand it, speak Pennsylvania Dutch? I, very little. Uh, some, some, I've been trying. 
Is there, do they sing? Is there, are there hymns? Mm -hmm. Yes. There's hymns are sung uh, in a very slow cadence. Uh, hymns are sung in, in more standard German, high German, some people would say. Um, and uh, uh, a hymn with four stanzas may take 20 minutes to sing. Uh, so it's a, um, very slow. Un unaccompanied, there are no musical instruments. Um, and there's not a there's no song leader who stands up and leads the, the singing. The the uh, the fourth singer, the person who leads the singing, uh, a man is always a man uh, will begin the hymn from wherever he happens to be seated, uh, and will sing the first word or the first syllable, and then everyone else joins in on uh, the remainder of the line. It's uh, how how quickly or, or slowly you sing the hymns really is an indication too of how progressive you are. Um, and a bishop told me once that he attended service out in Iowa where his his grandparents had been, and he 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 was saying they he was actually saying with some surprise that they sang the same songs as he did, though they were quicker. Um, and there's no harmony. Mm -hmm. the, are, there uh, are there recordings of these? Uh, there are some. Uh, it's fairly rare. Uh, there are some available um, from the Library of Congress. Uh, there have been several historical projects that have gathered mm -hmm. uh, recordings. Um, I was going to add that the minister stands on the floor. There's no pulpit. See, they're not meeting in church buildings. They're meeting in their home, in the basement of a home, or maybe out in a woodworking shop where they clear out the machinery. And we're talking about 150 people. Uh, gather, with children gathering together. How do so, you get to be a minister? Uh, well, you pray hard. Uh, they use a um, procedure where uh, it's called drawing lots, and every member of every adult member of the congregation can nominate. Let's say if we had an opening for a minister, someone died, um, every member of the congregation would be able to put a name forward, and uh, different. Groups have different traditions on that, but if either you get two names or if an individual would have two votes or three votes, then they would be in the so-called lot or the pool of candidates. And there could be six or eight in that pool. And then um, they would have a songbook for each person. And the songbooks are shuffled and in advance a slip of paper would be placed in referring to a Bible verse that talks about the use of drawing lots in the Bible, like to replace Judas, the disciple, also in Proverbs. And then, uh, let's say this is a table, and the three of us would be in the lot. Karen wouldn't would not work be because lot. only men are eligible, but women can nominate to put uh, men in. There'd be three books here, and then uh, the presiding bishop, Brian, we'd make you, the, you'd be the bishop, and you could say Thank whoever you. is moved by the Spirit to... So I'd reach and get the middle one first, and then Steve might reach over here and get this one. We, you know, and then you'd come and open them up and look to see who got the slip of paper. And whoever did would be ordained within about 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. So the That's whole- a lifetime. It's a lifetime. The whole service yeah. takes Commitment. place in about 90 minutes. Okay, and the men that morning as they're driving to service are worried, you know, am I gonna be in the lot? Is it gonna hit me? It's a bad yeah. thing. It's enormous responsibility. It's a heavy thing. I it's mean, a heavy Amish thing. people will say there. In some in some communities, they'll say, "There's during a church service, there's crying at a funeral and at an ordination. Yep. This is this is a heavy thing. It's it's a weighty thing." There was a young minister just got made up by us, and um, 
I ran into his wife. They, they happened to have no children, and everybody was saying how hard this was going to be because it's, it's for life. It's not a paid, it's not a paid mm -hmm. position. You're and doing this on um, top of your other job. You're doing it on top of your farming. Mm -hmm. They're just getting started and all of this, and the lot fell to him, and his wife um, was having to make him new clothes now, and he was going to. I, I talked to another fellow that I've known since he was six, and he had been in the lot, which I'm not supposed to know, but he, I'd found out from his sister that he'd been in the lot. And so I said, well, um, are, you, are you going? It, the, the church was going to be at his sister-in-law's place, or he could be in his own district. And his sister-in-law had invited them to come over for, for church that morning. He said, oh, no, I have to hear the first sermon. And I said, uh, I said, I hope you're going with a sense of relief. And he said, oh, yes. And he says, I'm, I'm praying my thanks as I go to hear this other new minister because it could have been him. Um, it, it's a ritual uh, peak. I mean, it's the most emotionally intense ritual in Amish society because there's this profound belief that God is reaching down from heaven and selecting this person. The power of that is it, it really legitimates power for the person that's selected because the community accepts this, that this is God's chosen servant. Mm -hmm. And so it actually in some ways helps to mitigate against uh, competition and divisiveness. Mm -hmm. uh, if you have a, a, a search committee in a Protestant congregation, you search for a new pastor and maybe you get a congregational vote of 70% for it and 30% against. Well, that person is starting with 30% of the congregation sort of, well, is this really the right person or not? So it's, it's, a, it's a powerful ritual uh, because they have this profound sense that God is reaching down from heaven and selecting this person. And then how, how does somebody get to be an Amish bishop? The lot from among the ministers. Oh, same, mm -hmm. same, same, procedure, same procedure, but you need to be a minister to be in the lot. Mm -hmm. So you, you couldn't go from a lay person <clears throat> to a bishop. What's an Amish wedding like? Karen's our wedding expert. <laughs> <laughs> you took a photo of someone's wedding dress in that's the book, right? right? That's yeah. right. That's right. Um, the, the, the wedding itself. Uh, excuse me. Let me say, she wasn't in the dress. No, she was not the in the dress. dress. Oh, the dress was hanging, was hanging in up. her bedroom. Yes. Uh, <laughs> no Amish wedding photos? Uh, no, no Amish wedding photos, though, though I was, um, for this particular wedding, I, I did get a chance to take a picture of, of the corner table. Um, the, the, the Amish wedding, uh, some of the Schwartz and Schubers call it a Hingelfleisch frolic, a chicken frolic. You get to come and eat lots of chicken. Um, the wedding itself, the ceremony, is tucked into that very long church service, and it's a very solemn time. Um, the church has probably been going on for, well, among the Schwartz and Schubers, a good three hours at that time, and I've gone over with the, the table waiters, that is, all the young girls who are helping get the, 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 the wedding dinner ready. Um, some of the cooks, and, and we've gone over to actually hear or to be there for the marriage part of the wedding. And so we're sitting there, and it's, it's over rather quickly. And you've got, you know, this, this young couple who, who looked about as scrubbed and afraid as any young couple getting married could be. Um, and then, you know, that, that wedding goes on, and then there's 
probably another half hour of service after that before mm -hmm. folks slowly make their way back to the house for the feast, which is the rest of the, the, day. Rest of the day, is eating. Um, the men will sing in the afternoon. The women say it's to get them out of the kitchen so they can get the dishes done. Um, and what, then there's more eating. What's the food like? Um, it depends on the, the community. Um, in, in for the, the, the couple whose wedding dress is pictured in the book, it was, um, there, were, there was a, a ham, there were, there were salads, there was jello, there was ice cream. A Schwartz and Truber wedding dinner is always set. It's the same. It's um, a particular kind of baked chicken. The, the chicken pieces are fried and then baked. Mashed potatoes, um, plates of cheese, pickles, stewed prunes. Um, you know, you've got cakes, you've got pies. And then for the supper, it will be meatloaf, leftover mashed potatoes fried into potato pancakes. Just a lot of it. There's a do, lot of food. Do, do they ever eat junk food? I mean, do they ever go down to the nearest yes. convenience mm -hmm. store and mm -hmm. buy a bag of potato one chips? Of the, in Lancaster, one of the favorite foods is pizza. Um, but they'll buy potato chips, taco chips. Um, so yes. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah. go, going back to wedding, what, what is courtship like? Um, secret. Uh, you, 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 people don't know for sure who's dating whom, and and this may differ in yeah, other this communities. Really does, yeah. yeah, this yeah. is I think more uh, <clears throat> peculiar to the more conservative groups. Right, um, you know, among the Schwartz and Troopers, you you you're dating um, after the singings. You the, a courting couple will go back to the the girl's house. They still singings have tend to be every other week. Every other uh, week, church mm -hmm. services are every other week, mm -hmm. and in the more traditional groups, the singing would be the at the place where the church service was right. held in the evening. Right. How, mm -hmm. how do they celebrate holidays? Uh, a lot of uh, visiting, uh, visiting family, mm -hmm. relatives. Um, uh, in northern Indiana, Ascension Day, for example, which is a Christian holiday, is not a particularly religious holiday. It's a holiday. It's a day off, and uh, men and boys will go fishing. Mm -hmm. and. Um, uh, then get together in the evening for an evening meal with extended family uh, mm -hmm. would be an example. Do they celebrate Christmas? Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, here in, in uh, eastern Pennsylvania, it's, Christmas is often a two-day holiday, Christmas Day and then December 26th that they call Second Christmas. Mm -hmm. uh, in the Midwest, um, the emphasis has, uh, falls more on January 6th, uh, Epiphany, mm -hmm. but which mm -hmm. they call Old Christmas. Mm -hmm. And that's actually more the holiday than December 25th for the Amish mm -hmm. in the Midwest. What's it like in New York? It's, a, it's the same with, with Old Christmas. Old Christmas, mm -hmm. yeah. With, Easter? Yeah, with Easter yeah. in Pennsylvania, they also celebrate Easter Monday. It's like a holiday mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for visiting and going out with friends and mm -hmm. so on. They give gifts on holidays? On Christmas? Pretty much only Christmas. Yeah, there would be some holidays they wouldn't celebrate as much, like Martin Luther King's. I mean, partly because Labor Day, Memorial Day, Memorial, yeah, civic more, holidays, less so. Yeah. It, yeah. And some of them, if they're into business, they may need a change, close down, or something. But if they're farming, um, and it's not that's not even so much a Amish thing. I grew up in a Mennonite farm family, and I mean, we didn't celebrate Memorial Day. We worked and we worked on 4th of July, it was more of a rural um, tradition, you know, you worked in those holidays. And I would say some of the Amish practices are not, there's nothing really Amish about them. They're 
typical of like early 20th century rural America. Mm -hmm. Things that anyone would have been doing that was a farmer at that point, regardless of their religious orientation, that the Amish mm -hmm. have simply continued those practices. And so they become entwined with Amish identity today, mm -hmm. but they aren't based on certain Amish religious convictions or their ideology. Or Stephen, mm -hmm. do they keep track of their genealogy? I mean, do they have in the family Bible or something? Mm -hmm. uh, Back, yeah, um, family traced back a lot of, of Amish families are quite interested in family history, and there there are um, Amish family genealogies, uh, proliferation of, of published genealogies, um, small booklets, uh, larger, more substantial uh, books that have been that have been done. Um, there is a, a small Amish historical library in Northern Indiana that was uh, set up by a number of of um, interested individuals, and one of the reasons they they did that was to pool all of the different genealogy books that they had in one place so that people could come to one place and work on uh, uh, work on their family history, family genealogy. So yeah, a lot of interest in family history. On, I don't know which of you uh, was the expert on this one. On the, on the back cover you have an event called Horse Progress Days. Mm -hmm. Can you explain what Yeah, that was actually, that um, I worked with the photographer that, in fact I was there when the photographer took the photo uh, this is uh, this photo comes from Lancaster County, and I believe it was two years ago. Horse Progress Days uh, rotate. It's an annual event. It rotates from one Amish community to another. One year it'll be in Ohio, one year Michigan, one year Pennsylvania. I don't know if it's been in New York or not, but it moves around. And it's a fascinating thing, Brian, because um, it brings together eight to 10,000 people uh, I would, this is just an estimate that 85 to 90 percent are Amish. The other 15 percent are English who are interested in horse-drawn equipment. They're horse hobbyists or they have farms that they farm with horses. So they come together to see demonstrations of the latest technology, the latest horse-drawn equipment for farming or for taking care of an orchard. And so there are Amish manufacturers who are creating equipment specifically to be pulled by horses that come. There are also English manufacturers um, who are, have sizable equipment that's being adapted to be pulled by horses. And so it's like a reunion, uh, kind of a festival, and also a chance to see the latest advances in horse-drawn technology. So it's a fascinating, mm -hmm. uh, almost oxymoron, horse progress days. Uh, and just really a, a fun thing. It, uh, it, was, it ran for three days in Lancaster, typically a two or three day event. A lot of ice cream, all kinds of goodies. Uh, there are vendors there uh, selling all kinds of products under tents. And it's just a, a really fun, and, and festive kind of, one of, of the event. things that horse progress days and, and similar kinds of events illustrate about Amish society. These are, these are like trade shows, but unlike, say, trade shows or professional conferences that we might participate in where, um, you know, you go to this event by yourself for professional uh, business reasons. The Amish often refer to these as reunions, and the whole mm -hmm. family will go. So it might be, they might have a leather worker reunion where they're also, it would be smaller than Horse Progress Days, but where there are different Amish and non-Amish mm -hmm. vendors who have different leather working um, 
machinery or other things that they're selling, but it's not just the leather worker in the family who goes. Everyone goes. They spend three days, and it's about meeting and uh, meeting again uh, other Amish people from, from around the country and spending a lot of time talking about things that have nothing to do with leather working. Just to piggyback on that, at this particular one that's on the back cover, they had a large uh, uh, temporary petting zoo set up for children. Okay. Uh, they had uh, playground equipment that was brought in for display, mm -hmm. but the children were using. They had uh, an Amishman with a horse pulling a little, um, it was like a train of maybe 20 barrels on wheels with an, uh, kids could sit in going mm -hmm. around in circles. So there was a lot of children, family yeah. friendly kind of activities yeah. going on, which mm -hmm. kind of underscores the, the same point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the idea of going to an event and not taking your family along would be puzzling to most Amish people. There's a lot I want to ask about, about things in your book that, that uh, just beg questions, but one of them, I, I just want to read this comment. It's sort of like the question, what's new with the Amish? You say, uh, some teens, depending on their affiliation, decorate their carriages with stickers and plastic reflectors or add air horns, stereo systems, and CD players run by batteries. One elder complained, some have wall-to-wall -wall carpeting, insulated woolly stuff all around the top, a big dashboard, glove compartment, speedometer, clock, CD player, buttons galore, and lights and reflectors all over the place. That's true. That's you, northern Indiana. I was going to say, you guys have to wild Amish out not, there. Not your, uh, not your Amish? <laughs> How far can they go with that? Uh, well, as, as is it just the young? As long as it's a horse-drawn vehicle. Um, well, <laughs> at, at the point at which someone joins the church, um, which uh, in the Amish tradition it's, it's uh, adult baptism rather than infant baptism, so usually the late teens or early 20s uh, that someone joins. So the point at which you join the church, there'd be an expectation that you start to bring your lifestyle in line with the expectations of the church, and then certainly at the point at which you get married. Um, you, you in some ways become a, a full member of the community when you get married, when you get married, in part because thereafter there's a real possibility that you will have children and will need to model the Amish way for your children. So, uh, and, and so church membership, marriage, and then parenthood are, are key points at which all the things that you read there would, would uh, have to be, uh, have to be scaled taken back. Off the, yeah. Taken out of the book, I mean, literally taken yeah. out. And what is Rumspringa, and what is it that people think it is that it is not? Well, we were just talking about that in the way up here because there was a, a, a national television morning program just within the last week uh, talking about it that had a lot of errors. And Rumspringa means, the literal translation mean running around. Until uh, young people are typically 16, it varies a little bit by community, but when, until they are 16, they are at home in the evenings and weekends, or they go places with their parents. Okay, they're not going out as 13 or 12 year olds alone. Uh, when they're 16, then on the weekends, or in some cases evenings, they go out and hang out with their friends. Uh, play volleyball, go hunting together, go swimming together, uh, do a variety of things. And the room springer continues until they join the church or even beyond that until they become married. Mm -hmm. And during this time, uh, before they're in the church, like with the buggy and the examples mm -hmm. there, they are sort of in between the regulations of the church and the supervision of their parents. I mean, Amish teens are like other teens. The parents really don't always know where they are, or what they're doing, they can't control them. So in some cases, like in Lancaster, um, there are certain teen groups that would, where the young guys would own cars, get cars. 
Uh, they might go to New York City for a weekend. They might have parties and, and have um, electrical um, outlets where they would have parties, have televisions, dances, and so on. Play so, video games. Video games, mm -hmm. exactly. So uh, there's a lot of that. What is not true about a lot of the mythology is they don't leave home. There, there, there's a tendency in, in, in this TV program I just mentioned where they talked about well, they go out in Roomspringa mm -hmm. to a city for two years and then come back home. It's not true. One percent may leave, but 99 percent during Roomspringa are living in their home mm -hmm. community. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They're, they're going away on Saturday night with friends, but they're going away in the same community right. in which they live. They're and not they're in an Amish group. They're still in right. a little mobile Amish world in terms of how they think and look at the world. Okay, And they know at some point... Uh, they're likely going to join the church. 85 to 95 percent of them will eventually join the church, and they know that. So they're, you know, having a little fun until they grow up. Um, mm -hmm. Not unlike some college students that I know. Yeah. Um, and I must say, the room springer generally is more civilized than what happens sometimes with some college students. Yeah. What happens to the ones who don't join the church when they become adults? They go in a lot of different directions. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think there's a, a typical pattern. Yeah. Some may want to, uh, I know of a number that want to fly an airplane. Uh, typically, mm -hmm. um, Amish churches uh, forbid flying on airplanes. And so some of them want to become pilots. Some may want to go to college and study. I know there become are cases, mm -hmm. become yeah. doctors, uh, physicians, nurses. Can some, they? some of them are looking for a different sort of religious experience. So mm -hmm. instead of the... Uh, three to four hour slow and very staid religious uh, service in the Amish community, they maybe want to join a much more exuberant and expressive uh, Pentecostal church. Um, Do they keep in touch with the folks back home? Can they go back and it, visit? It depends. They, if they haven't been baptized, they're not technically excommunicated or shunned because the church respects the principle of voluntarism, that as adults they're deciding do they want to join or don't they. So in most cases, they would be free to come back. It depends a lot on the family dynamics. The family may feel shame by the fact that the young person has left the church. The family may be angry about that, and so th there may be some animosity there. But in many cases, the family sort of sees this coming and knows it, and uh, they are able to come back. Mm -hmm. If they join the church and are baptized and as a 35-year-old get a car, then he would be pretty much automatically excommunicated. Then that would be followed by shunning. And so then it would be difficult to come back unless they were willing to confess their transgression. Then they could be reunited with the church and reunited, reunited with their family. Do they, do they accept converts? Yes. Mm -hmm. it's, it's very rare. Yeah. Uh, there, there are uh, relatively few, uh, who, few people who have uh, joined the Amish church and, and, and and persisted uh, uh, in that. So it, it has happened, uh, and it's possible. But um, the, frankly, the, the gap between the Amish way of life and expectations uh, that come with that and our way of life, not to mention practical things like learning Pennsylvania Dutch, which you would need to do. Harnessing a horse. Really wanted to be a member of the church, all those <laughs> things. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a challenge. And, oh. and it doesn't offer any guarantees. I mean, the Amish don't believe that you know you're saved, so you're, you're joining a church that offers hope of salvation, but 
Um, yeah, the Amish well, aren't going to promise salvation. Right, right, mm -hmm. right. They, they do not aggressively engage in evangelism uh, or proselytizing. They do want to live a lifestyle that they feel gives a witness and a light to the outside world, but they're not, they don't operate mission agencies or try to recruit people. And they do not fly on airplanes? But there, there's one progressive group that permits it, but generally they do not. And trains, buses, okay. Trains, trains. and buses are fine. And there, there's where historical tradition comes in because they were uh, using trains in the 19th century. You could use boats to get from Europe uh, to the New World. Uh, they were in trolleys, and so trolleys, buses, and uh, uh, trains are acceptable. The airplane, in terms of general population use, it doesn't really happen until the mid-20th century. Well, where do you have to go to get an airplane? To a big city somewhere. What are you going to do with your horse? Why do you want to fly so far away? What, what's the problem here? Mm -hmm. So it just didn't make sense mm -hmm. because, well, we can go by bus. Uh, we can go by train. Uh, we can hire a taxi from our neighbor if we need to go a local distance. It just didn't fit. There, we only have 10 minutes left, and there's loads of things I want to ask about, but I had to ask about this one. Uh, in the summer of 2010, an Amish community in Ohio was shocked to learn that Monroe Beachy, an Amish investment manager, had filed for bankruptcy after losing $17 million placed in his confidence by some 2,700 investors, most of whom were Amish. Upset that he had violated church teaching by filing for bankruptcy, Amish investors proposed to the U.S. Bankruptcy Court an alternative church plan to repay creditors. Now, there's a lot of questions in there. First of all, an Amish investment banker. This is true. Um, he's an eighth grade educated uh, man. I've met him, uh, interviewed him about three years before this happened. He was very bright, uh, very intelligent, uh, was a tax accountant, and um, he got involved in placing funds, uh, Amish funds, for some church and family related organizations and investments for Amish people. Uh, my own take on this is that he was trying to do his best to uh, grow income for members of the Amish community who invested money with him. When the recession started um, five or six years ago, things started to go down. And at that point, I, I, he wasn't transparent and didn't report to the people uh, that were investing funds with him, what was happening. And that was his error, and he kept trying to hide it, and the longer he hid it and the economy went into a tailspin, the worse it got. But the, the interesting thing is that the community was outraged by the fact that he filed bankruptcy, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. they considered a fundamental moral violation of a deep conviction that if you have a problem like this, you sh the church should help to repay uh, the debts and take care of it, you shouldn't engage the law in it. And so what the story is suggesting there is that church leaders actually petitioned the bankruptcy court and said, let us take care of this. We'll raise money, volunteer funds to take care of the people uh, who've been hurt by this. Uh, but the court turned that down. Um, and so it has gone through the, the regular sequence and steps for bankruptcy. You wrote a book a few years ago called Amish Enterprise about business. Actually, Steve and I did that together. It was mm -hmm. uh, a collaborative project. Yes. And uh, on uh, Amish who start businesses because there's mm -hmm. not enough farmland and mm -hmm. various reasons. Are there Amish who get wealthy? Yeah, there are. Um, 
Amish people who do very well uh, in, in, in business. Um, there are a number of ways in which Amish society tends to um, mask some of, of uh, the differences that would, some, some of, the, of the disparity in wealth. Everyone is driving uh, the same style of buggy, dressing more or less in the same style of clothing in, in a particular community, uh, sending their children to the same sort of schools. So um, there, there are ways in which the disparity of wealth is, is um, uh, not as extreme as in mainstream society. On the other hand, it's clear that some Amish uh, people have the resources to um, spend the winter in Florida or to uh, take a trip to visit the Grand Canyon or just uh, have the resources to buy a, a hunting cabin in northern Pennsylvania or to um, buy the latest... Um, uh, archery equipment for hunting. So there, there, there are ways in which, in which um, differences in differences in income and disposable income are are also uh, visible. Um, there's there's been a um, often a, 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 a an, an emphasis that people who have greater means have then also a greater responsibility within the community to provide funding uh, for. Um, uh, maybe to uh, help um, build Amish schools, uh, Northern Indiana would be one of the cases, or to contribute money to a revolving mortgage fund that uh, young couples can borrow from at uh, low rates of interest, uh, or to give generously when there are medical, uh, large medical bills in the community and things like that. So there, there's also a sense of uh, responsibility to the community. I don't want to run out of time before we talk about some of the problems that are in the Amish community because every now and then there's something in the news about uh, <coughs> drug use or drug dealers in the Amish mm -hmm. community and there was a story about the, the, the one family that cut the hair of another family and were arrested for that. Uh, how, how is the Western civilization encroaching on the Amish community and what kind of problems does it cause? Ooh. <laughs> Um, I, I think, again, it depends on the community. It depends on how, how, how much interaction there is with, the, with, with English society. Um, you talk about obvious differences in wealth, for example. Mm -hmm. In the most conservative folks in, in very rural areas, like where I live, you don't see any obvious signs of wealth, and, and you don't see that kind of investment practices. And what you do see are, are those who are wealthy helping others buy farms in a general subsistence level. And because their distance from the English world is greater, um, you see, I mean, where they tend to have, have difficulty with the English world is where their traditions bring them into conflict with English laws. For example, up by us, it's been problems with building permits. How, how can you get a permit if the permit application requires that you put in a smoke detector and your religious beliefs will not let you put a smoke detector in your home? And so if you can't buy a permit, you can't build a house. And if you can't build a house, you can't practice. You have no place to live and practice your faith. And that has resulted in some, some major conflict. Um, it, it's, it's very clear the Amish aren't saints. They don't yeah. walk on water. And they, they're humans. And they've got issues and problems like many of the rest of us do. There are cases of uh, domestic violence. There are cases of child abuse. Uh, there are cases of uh, drug abuse. It's, that's fairly selective, but in some communities it's true in terms of the room spring of years. Mm -hmm. So there are a variety of issues that they need to deal with. Um, I think 
if you look at the total picture, all things being equal, all things considered, um, their are examples, let's say, of child abuse or drug abuse are certainly, uh, in my judgment, um, more reduced than they would be in the larger society. Mm -hmm. But they're not immune from these kind of things. Mm -hmm. they're, they're human people. beings. They're people. To, to end on a little more positive note, you have a, I don't know if I can find it right now, but um, you have a photograph of a, a, a book that is an Amish romance, Amish romance novel? We do. Mm -hmm. We do. Is that kind of a surprise? Uh, that Karen's that our expert on this. Um, <laughs> the Amish have, have become the stuff of popular fiction. I believe it's the fastest oh, growing. Is this for uh, the general public to read, or yes, is it for yes. Amish to read? No, no, no not no. for the Amish. The, to read. The, the, the Amish like them. Um, some of them. So, some of some them do. care. Some do. Yeah, some um, find them. I have to say, a lot of my um, Schwartz and Truber women friends really can't get enough of them. And they, they find it very interesting, though those Amish aren't like us, they'll the, all they, say. They are typically written by women with an evangelical orientation. Writing for the primary audience tends to be other women. And it's basically mm -hmm. romance without sex. Right. And so you can enjoy a romantic novel, and maybe you get to a kiss, but that's it. And so... Um, it, it offers escapism because you're, you're visiting in, in fiction another culture. Mm -hmm. At the same time, it reinforces the fact that one is well off just where one is. I mean, you, 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 you are often, it, it often gives a, a misleading sense of the Amish world as very patriarchal and very rule-bound and people can't really think on their own and, and it's very difficult for the women. So it, it reinforces for, for non-Amish readers. It that, reinforces you know. the, the values of the but, English but world. Brian, in 2012, every four days, a new romance novel, Amish romance novel, was coming out. One and well, a half per week. It's a phenomenal thing. Yeah. I, I wish we could sit here all day and talk about this, because it's a fascinating <laughs> subject. But if, if viewers want to know the answers to anything that we want to talk about, they should look at this book, The Amish. Donald, Craybill, Karen, Johnson, Weiner, and Stephen Nolte, thank you very much. Thank, Thank you, you for having us. Thank you. mm -hmm. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.